You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because you're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Karan, it's really good to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Could you just give a little background story of uh, yourself and your work so the audience can uh, learn about you a little bit? Sure, absolutely. So I've been a programmer ever since I've been 16 years old. Um, I got this bug as a result of me being very naughty and uh, having too much time in my hand. And my father decided that it would be a lot more productive if I learned something new. So he got me a computer and that's where kind of my journey began. Uh, I've been, you know, ever since I had my hands on my first Mac, that, that is what it was at that time. Uh, I wrote my first program and, uh, you know, learned a bunch of technologies and languages and uh, got into programming really uh, full-time, so to speak, in a way that I used to go visit a doctor for a treatment that I was trying to have for my throat. And, uh, you know, every time I would uh, go there, it would be a long wait before he had a, he would have to go find my record. So one day I just was the impatient me. I just decided to say to him, you know, why don't you use a computer to build something? Uh, I mean, to speed this process up a little bit. And he kind of looked at me and he goes, well, you're such a smart ass. Why don't you go build me something? So three months later, I did come back with a version of a product that we then subsequently sold multiple times over. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that was kind of my journey into the entrepreneurial world. Um, <laughs> since then, yep, I've started and closed many companies. And, uh, you know, we started uh, ISS 247 back th- back in the day. Now it's 24-7 software. In 2009, after another startup, which I, I was a founder of, failed. And, uh, you know, we are at this point the largest provider of venue management application. Uh, which are used by 400 plus facilities around the world. Uh, the company in 2009 started with simply providing a very simple text-based messaging system for sports venues, for, especially for the Miami Dolphins. And we grew that company and the team from zero two people to up to a team of 65 engineers today, got acquired in 2017, uh, and I decided to continue to stay on board to see where this goes. So that's kind of a little bit of two minute, uh, you know, breakdown of my journey so far. Well done. And you've covered a lot of ground in that time, you know, talk about that entrepreneurial bug and how it fits into, you know, being a, a tech leader. I know so many of our listeners will relate to that, that, you know, it's like, wow, I want to be a technologist and I like writing code. And I also like to start businesses. And what about leadership? You know, it just, it kind of becomes like, 
uh, a time grab. You know, you, you just can't do everything, but but you want to. So I mean, how have you made that balance work? Absolutely. So one of the things I've realized early on is if you want to be an engineer, you're going to be an engineer. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you're going to be an entrepreneur. If you want to be both, good luck. It's really hard because uh, what you have to kind of realize and understand at what point where if you're an engineer, you don't over innovate a product where if you're building something, you have to look at from the business perspective, whether it makes sense or not. And as you start uh, learning that, you'll come to realize that there's a balance that you need to maintain. And a lot of that has to do with experience. And, you know, the more failures you would have from an entrepreneurial perspective will kind of help you learn and guide uh, on what your engineering skills could complement with that. Um, so I think it's there is no one size fits all answer for this, but it, it usually depends on, you know, who you really want to be and what your career aspirations are. Yeah. Talk about some, you know, some of the learnings from failures. I think that we all in the entrepreneurial space certainly embrace the, you know, if, if not fail fast, you at least have to fail a lot of times to, you know, to, to learn things. Uh, what are some of the major learnings uh, rising out of the, the failures for you? So, you know, one of the things I've kind of uh, always honed down on is one of the sayings that Mark Cuban has is, you know, one, every failure is one step closer to success. So first of all, you cannot let failure make you feel that you're completely failed in anything. Uh, it's just another step for you to get to closer to a success. And like you said, uh, you do want to fail fast, but every time I have failed, I've kind of sat down and looked back at what have I learned from this and what will I obviously you know, uh, do better in the future. But when it comes to technology and com tech companies specifically, there are certain patterns that companies tend to follow. And there are certain patterns that the companies, uh, you know, uh, there are the patterns which are common amongst successful companies. And you have to really get to know what those patterns really are. And I know I'm talking in context of more of Silicon Valley companies and, uh, you know, things uh, which scale overnight and become a unicorn and so on and so forth. But there are other companies, you know, which are relatively smaller, like in, like in our case, we are a very niche SaaS-based uh, provider. We are certainly not a unicorn status company, but we are profitable, we are a successful business, and we do provide a great product to our customers. Um, so the base core fundamental is obviously you need to find a product market fit for the product that you're providing, and customer service is one of the best things you could do if your customers love you uh you know you'll you'll be there for a while we have had almost two percent churn rate for year over year which is in a SaaS company that's kind of one of the really low parameters to look at and uh, you have to continue to innovate and provide value to your customers and if you if you fail to do that you're going to certainly fail as a company and as an individual also so and the list goes on and on. I can I can talk about this for a whole day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What's that? What's that look like in an early stage company where you know you don't have unlimited resources for a customer success function or you know account managers or you know all those things? I mean, you're just trying to make it work. You're trying to ship product. You're trying to listen to customers. Um, what would you recommend on you know sort of a customer focus or a customer empathy focus? But for, you know, people that just, you know, they don't really have the, the capital and they're, they're really trying to bootstrap and spread it around. So we, you know, our example is a pretty good example for that. And I, I completely understand where, where the 
issue might be. First of all, when you're at a startup, when if you're an entrepreneur, you're kind of everybody. You're doing accounting, you're doing coding, you're doing sales, you're doing customer service, you're doing everything. Be prepared. You have to be prepared for that. And that, in a way, is a blessing in disguise because every function that you touch within your own company and you work in that department, it will teach you something new about that. Later on, when you're ready to scale that, you will be able to use that learning and do the right things because you'll know exactly what you did in those those areas and how and what tone uh, that you want to set up. As far as managing resources, you know, it's hard early on. Different teams and companies tackle it very differently. There are a lot of options these days. You can outsource a lot of things. Um, you know, you could get relatively uh, talent for relatively cheap from interns, um, if that's something that your company could use as a business model. Uh, last but least, if you're managing 10 or less customers, you can certainly very well manage them uh, yourself uh, if you're a small team of four or five uh, you know, individuals within a company. But as you start scaling, you have to build an organization that revolves around the culture of customer service. And that has to be the central and core principle of your business model. Yeah, absolutely. And and I wonder how long did it, you know, because that itself is, as you talked about, the pattern matching of right. experience built out of, of failures or, you know, sort of half successes or what have you. How long did it take you to, to put that together? You know, what what number of examples and experiences, you know, create a pattern that, that you feel that you can rely on? Well, in our experience, we didn't realize that that's what we should have been doing early on. So um, I wish that some that would have happened early on for us, but it took us a while. But uh, what I would, one of the things I would recommend is, you know, start reaching out to all these successful CEOs and executives of other companies and seeing and mint, speaking with them, networking them, asking them questions. And also at the same time, you want to communicate with all the executives of failed companies because they have a lot more to tell you than the ones that have actually succeeded. A lot of people, once they succeed, will fa- will forget a lot of their failures because they want to not remember those things. So I think having a balance uh, and you know networking amongst that, uh, that group certainly helps and that helped us quite a lot. You talked about your own, um, I guess, habit of, you know, sort of a retrospective after any of the things that you did. Did you capture that that knowledge or was that more sort of like a, a tacit back of, of mind thing? Like, did you, I don't know, I've seen, seen some founders sort of come up with their playbook, you know, and they actually write it down and, and refer back to it. Or was it more like a mental process? It, it, it was more of a mental process at this point. However, I do have something more you know, solidified, written, documented. Uh, but, you know, this document, so to speak, kind of changes almost on a weekly or monthly basis because there are small failures, there are larger failures, there are bigger successes that we achieve one way or the other. So it certainly, you know, uh, is documented. Uh, but in my case, a lot of it is also, you know, in mental. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how do you um, how do you recognize the symptoms early on of, of a, maybe a bad pattern that you have? seen before? Are there a collection of, uh, I don't know, feelings or results or things that you can start to notice as your leading indicators? It's quite simple, actually, because if you have a mission statement about your company and if you have certain goals, you're def- if you're not meeting those, uh, you know, you definitely need to uh, look at that in a more deeper way. And what I mean by that is 
uh, we became a very number-oriented organization in the last few years, and we, we're trying to target certain number of customers and uh, revenue. And if we couldn't get to that number, obviously, we were not achieving those goals. I think well, that's one of the things that a lot of companies who are product and engineering-driven will fail to recognize that revenue is a critical part of growth that you need to maintain and be able to be profitable and not just build or overbuild a product. Uh, and that is where I've also seen a lot of companies fail where they would just go out and overdo the product and build something that the market doesn't either really want or is overbuilt for the market. So those are the kind of patterns that you need to look for. And, uh, you know, uh, you can create your own indicators, uh, but having some sort of bench benchmark that you can test your performance against or your company's and your team's performance against uh, early on is really helpful. Yeah, what are some of those key KPIs? I mean, obviously, I think revenue's got to be on the list. And I also know that, um, most folks would recommend, you know, you can't have more than say, I don't know, five, you know, sort of core things that you measure. What do those look like in, in your world? In our world, biggest was a churn because we are in a very niche uh, market space. And, uh, you know, there's only so many number of venues. We do have now a product, product horizon that spreads across different verticals. But that's that's one of the KPIs. Churn was something that we wanted to manage and everything drove around it and it was more like okay what can we do to reduce our churn even though it was relatively low anyway but that was one of the biggest parameters second was customer success because we knew that if we did a great job at servicing our customers it would excuse me it would automatically help reduce churn and uh, as a result we'll increase revenue and so customer success, what, what are you measuring there? Uh, I mean, it seems, sounds to me like it's it, retention certainly being the opposite of churn. Um, how, how do you measure customer success? So, you know, there are multiple things that you could do. When if, if we are, for example, if we are potentially soliciting a new customer and uh, we give them a reference to an existing customer, it kind of how much they love us as a company, how much, uh, you know, they're willing to go out of their way to try to sell to our potential new customer is kind of an indicator that you know we're doing a good job at as a product company and as a customer service company. So that's one of it. There is no, we don't maintain any kind of logs internally to see how, how well we are answering customer calls so on and so forth. Because for us, we answer phone calls seven days a week, 24 seven, you know, it doesn't matter what time and when it is. If a customer needs help, we're there to support and help them. So maintaining logs any of that stuff doesn't really help because that's not part of our culture uh, just 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 on that same topic uh, you can come up with your own kpis but i think having a customer happiness kpi is really helpful and one of the best things a ceo or an executive could do is reach out to customers randomly and you know talk to them and ask them how how you're doing and be open to feedback not everybody on your team would be the same as you would and then it kind of becomes your job to coach them along to bring them up to the company culture. Yeah, it makes me think this is what NPS is supposed to do, uh, but it often feels like NPS is kind of a, a blunt instrument. And I'm always, you know, I'm always ever wondering like how bias is the answer <laughs> that's, that's coming right. back, you know, from this thing. And, and the, the open-ended feedback is, is very often not substantial. Have you toyed with that at all? Not really. Like I said, we are very different uh, when it comes to that. So we haven't really, uh, you know, looked at that. 
Yeah, yeah, we've had a mixed bag as as well, and it's it's always an interesting thing. You know, love love that number when it comes back high, but mm-hmm. then you kind of wonder what's baked into that. You know, from assumption standpoint, and and done nothing beats getting on the phone or even better video. You know, with with actual customers. So we're in the business of you know hiring and and retaining and you know making sure we have like just the very best you know freelance engineers. And I always uh, always like to ask you know tech leader guests, particularly who have been, you know, in the engineering seat now, you know, CTO seat, uh, what are your heuristics for hiring? You know, so you want to add the best engineers to your team. How do you figure that out on on the way in? Well, uh, that's a great question. First of all, we love to bring people in into our team who love to create and build things. Uh, They certainly have to be intellectually uh, you know, on a higher level than anybody else, but also somebody who doesn't like to give up because, you know, there's technical challenges on a, almost on a daily basis. Uh, there are multiple different factors that go into trying uh, to go for recruitment, uh, you know, uh, for an engineer. Uh, I personally prefer to work with people who have had, pa- who, have, who actually have passion for technology and then the passion for to change things in the world and space we are in. Uh, if you're a sports fan and if you love to build sports technology, you'll certainly be enjoying doing this. But uh, hiring for us is a very broad topic. Again, it'll take a long time <laughs> for me to break it down. Yeah, absolutely. And and we hear that all the time is that, uh, you know, I wonder if this resonates with you. Like, just how much of that is really based on, uh, you know, uh, qualitative things? You know, it's it's just not about code tests or you know, checking code, that's almost like the table stakes. That's like the cost of entry. Of course, you need those technical skills. Um, but then as far as, you know, when I, I've asked this question a hundred times and the answer, you know, almost invariably comes back to, you know, ability to communicate soft skills. Is it someone likable problem solving skills, um, you know, ability to demonstrate, you know, being sort of a great team member. And when you, when you think about items like that, you know, the company culture plays so much into it because what's a great, communicator probably has some standard, you know, sort of metrics, behind it, but, but in your company, the way you communicate, uh, you know, it's just different in the way that the things that, that you value. So does it, do you, do you think about hiring from the standpoint of, you know, sort of core values, mission statement kind of stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Those, I mean, some of the aspects that you mentioned are, you know, these are kind of the basic parameters that we would go with. We can't, we have a team size of 65 within our engineering group and, uh, we can't, you know, we certainly have to have people who are able to communicate effectively with each other and a great team player because we have seven scrum development teams uh, and they all have to work cohesively together, uh, collectively together. And all of them have to realize and understand what our mission statement really is. And, you know, we do also empower, even if somebody is fresh out of college, uh, there's a lot of power and control that they have over how and what the effect they, they could do as part of the, as being the team member. So, yeah. So it's not just all about you know sort of years of experience no, on no, a resume. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> matter. I mean, you could you know one of the great examples I always give is uh, you could be working in one place and for six years and doing average coding, or you could go somewhere and actually build out something really cool in one year. So the experience of this one guy for one year is a lot more than somebody who's doing a repetitive, monotonous thing for six years. Sure, yeah. sure. So how do you come down as a SaaS company now on? Um, you know, remote work, distributed work, you know, how do you deal with these issues that there was a constrained labor market now and, and you know, the, the best way to hire seems to be just hire 
anywhere, but that introduces so much, um, you know, complexity sure. if you're not ready for it. Well, we do have a global distributed engineering team. Uh, one of the ways we have solved that problem is, well, a couple of things. Um, first of all, we have a very sophisticated uh, development lifecycle uh, with separate DevOps teams, QA teams, and you know, engineering development teams. So that's just one piece of the component. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer. Uh, and all, in addition to this, uh, there's also a process. And the process really, I think, helps over here. You have to, as an organization, understand and realize what process works best for you. For some companies, a waterfall method of development might work. For some, Scrum is best. For us, Scrum is best. And then for some, Kanban is best. And there's you know, newer things that are being implemented in different environments. I think having a proper, solid process for development coupled with proper tooling um, and communication methods being set. Communication is obviously a key part of all this. If you're going to have teams in India and Philippines and Brazil and the United States, you know, you got to be able to establish a proper method that all these uh, teams are communicating with them uh, effectively. And the biggest challenge that you'll end up having is uh, the cultural differences and expectations from every part of the world. So you also need kind of need team members who are open to the idea and are you know receptive to work in an environment like that. It it, it all starts from there, uh, and you know putting the right process in place along with the right tools uh, should certainly work. Absolutely, Akron. Well, thank you so much for the insights. It's been uh, really good to have you on. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.